Well, the forces are assembled in front, and I think you're all settling down. Uh, uh, this, of course, is the panel for Princeton partisanship. Uh, uh, Madison is the, uh, is the founder of our graduate uh, program, and spiritually, if not in reality. So uh, the basic paper is by Lance Banning, who is more than a household word to anyone who uh, uh, reads and is con uh, about and is concerned with, uh, uh, with James Madison. Uh, the two commentators, Alan Gibson, has actually uh, written not only on Madison, but on Banning and Madison, uh, so very, uh, uh, very appropriate. And Drew McCoy's work on Madison, of course, is also obligatory reading for anyone who... Uh, There's is. a difference between Madison and Banning? Ah, well, <laughs> remains to be seen. So, so, Lance, the floor is yours, and, uh, uh, and this will then extend into the lunch period uh, Informal. Thank you. Well, uh, Madison is not the most abused or most neglected uh, of the nation's founders, but he may well be the one whose own conception of himself or whose contemporaries' conceptions of him is most at odds with our own current recollections. Uh, that's true, I think, whether current recollections mean uh, the image of his personality and work that's embedded in our textbooks and in public discourse generally conceived. But it's true as well, I think, if current recollections mean the understandings that permeate the body of second-level scholarship and are pressed in much of the most influential work of the last 50 years. So what I tried to do in my paper was to call attention to both of these kinds of misperceptions uh, and to briefly summarize uh, the different understanding uh, offered in my own and other recent writing. Uh, Madison, as you know, has never won much popular acclaim. Uh, if mine are an example, uh, most beginning college students couldn't list his most essential contributions. And no appropriate memorial has ever been erected. But Madison was just so essential at so many points in the creation of the Republic that the well-informed can't really understand it in any other terms than those that he helped define. Uh, Madison led Virginia, which led the other states in uh, organizing a successful constitutional convention uh, he took the leading role in framing and explaining the reform, prepared the Bill of Rights, uh, and probably did more than Jefferson himself to outline the policies and principles that came to be known as Jeffersonian democracy. Uh, because of this, Madison has been called the founding father. Uh, and it's quite common to encounter references to uh, the Madisonian Constitution or the Madisonian system that governs us today. Uh, ironically, it may be just that close and frequently extravagant association of the man uh, with the movements 
uh, that accounts for many of the misinterpretations because it tempts pundits and even scholars uh, to try to claim or condemn Madison for a current cause. Uh, Faulty portraits of Madison's personality abound, uh, together with disparaging assessments of his course between the writing of the Bill of Rights and the end of the War of 1812. Uh, And those are one of the subjects of the paper, uh, which tries to insist that Madison was hardly the retiring, timid politicians and behind-the-scenes intriguers Uh, who appears in some of the most widely purchased uh, recent work. Combative self-assertion, self-promotion is expected from politicians today, but Madison was probably the least vainglorious of all of the great founders. He never claimed undue credit. Uh, Lived as literally a model of disinterested public service, He was a man whose modesty was so habitual and so deep and so without pretense that it's nearly impossible for us to credit. Uh, He did his homework conscientiously, was a persuasive public speaker, and dominated as many public meetings as he did because so many saw him as the most knowledgeable statesman in the country. He was commanding, neither in his personality nor manner. He had a remarkable capacity to see all issues in their full complexity, uh, to candidly admit the limitations of his own position, uh, and to call for genuine regard for popular opinion. Uh, And that could sometimes be seen as uh, indecision, playing to the galleries, weakness under pressure, and so on. Uh, He treated his opponents with unfailing courtesy in public, and when he outlived them all, refused to say a bitter word of any. But beneath that affability and gentleness uh, was a core of iron. Madison, if you think about it, was a better public speaker and a more combative legislative leader than Jefferson ever was. And Jefferson followed Madison about as often as the younger man deferred to his senior colleague. Uh, As Elkins and McKittrick recently said, Madison was a dedicated revolutionary statesman who was often less inclined to compromise than he was quietly, implacably, and altogether publicly determined to secure his fundamental ends. Now, modern scholarship has uh, long been right about Madison's single most important contribution. You know, decade after independence, it tells us, the United States was faced, in the opinion of many of its leaders, uh, with a major twofold crisis. Uh, on one side, uh, there seemed ample cause to doubt the very survivability of the Confederation of the States. 
the inability of the existing central government to pay its debts, enforce its laws, uh, correct an economic downturn, or confront the rising animosities between assorted states and regions, uh, raised the very real and very imminent possibility of a collapse of the Confederation into several smaller and probably colliding uh, units. And concurrently, uh, another aspect of the crisis seemed to threaten the Republican experiment itself. Uh, as Madison explained it, the unstable and unjust career of the governments of the states is the multiplicity, the mutability, and the injustices uh, of local laws had forfeited the respect and confidence essential to order and good government. Uh, a few of the elites of the elites seemed nearly ready to abandon the Republican experiment entirely, and that kind of disillusionment, if it should spread, uh, could threaten even popular commitment to the revolutionary cause. So Madison's distinctive contribution, scholars explain, was to conclude that those two threats were so inseparably related that neither, neither of them could be met without attention to the other and neither could be solved without a thoroughgoing reconstruction of the federal system. That's the insight that informed the plan that Madison and his colleagues presented to the Constitutional Convention. Uh, the insight that informed his leadership of that convention. Uh, and the organizing point of his assertion in the greatest classic of American political thought, that the completed Constitution offered a Republican corrective for the vices most endemic to republics. Indeed, that a well-constructed federal republic would provide the most complete security for liberty that humankind had ever devised. The problem with that scholarship is that so much of it focuses so exclusively on the contributions of 1787 and 88. And so much of that uh, centers on the arguments advanced in Federalist Papers number 10 and 51. Misinterpretations of Madison's stand and objects seemed inherent, I think, in the usually unrecognized assumptions that underpin and permeate uh, most of the scholarship we were all raised on. You know, interpretive mistakes begin with the assumption uh, seldom challenged until fairly recently, uh, that Madison was one of a committed group of nationalists pursuing centralizing change throughout the 1780s, uh, that he preferred a stronger central government than the convention ultimately approved, and broke from his allies in this centralizing quest only in 1791, when he was confronted with Hamilton's plan for a national bank, at which point supposedly he switched from broad to strict construction of the Constitution. Uh, the mistakes incorporate a virtually unshakable conviction that the whole of Madison's distinctive vision, 
is really encapsulated in those two great essays mentioned. Uh, in modern jargon, the spin that all sides put on Madison's ideas really create a figure who's less James Madison than a creature of our own imaginations and our own political concerns. Now, doubtless I'm less successful than I'd like to be in trying to cram uh, a critique of so much of that scholarship into the confines of a single paper. And I certainly can't do it uh, in these comments. But what I may be able to do is at least to highlight the major lines of an alternative interpretation that I think is beginning to emerge in my longer work in a work like that of Drew McCoy, uh, Jack Rakoff, J uh, James N. Reed, uh, Colin Sheehan, and Alan Gibson, uh, many of whom are with us today. Right. Federalist number 10, uh, this would suggest, is just not the key to Madison's founding vision. You know, that essay is his commentary on the great advantages of an enlarged republic for controlling democratic faction, uh, which is one, but only one, of the problems that the dedicated champions of an elective government have to solve. It was by no means Madison's concern about unjust majorities that marked him as distinctive in his age. Everybody knew that majorities could be oppressive. It was his faith that those majorities could be restrained without abandoning majority control or grounding any part on government of government on an authority that would be independent of the people. Moreover, in his search for a Republican corrective for the vices of republics, Madison was not at any point an advocate of large republics, simply speaking. You know, what he advocated was a well-constructed federal republic in which only limited responsibilities would be in federal hands. In short, overemphasizing Madison's alarm about majority abuses and discounting his commitment to the federal features of the system, uh, scholars have repeatedly and mistakenly suggested that the qualifiers or the limits of Madison's democratic faith were actually its essence. Madison was undeniably concerned about conditions in the states, and he did undoubtedly intend to rectify those problems. But he specifically contested the contention that the problem of union might be solved uh, without a thoroughgoing reconstruction of the federal system. He said that the problems of the Union were insoluble within the confines of the Articles of Confederation. And that surely is his first and most distinctive contribution to the founding. 
Then as he defended it, the Finnish Constitution, he said, was by no means meant to work a massive transfer of political responsibilities from the states to the central government or into hands that would be unresponsive to the people. You know, the Constitution, he said, was designed to make it possible for the central government to act effectively on matters that were already federal concerns uh, and a few additional matters that even anti-federalists believe should be in federal hands, such as the regulation of trade. Some federalists uh, may have wished to shift as much authority as possible into central hands and even into the hands of the branches of the central government least responsive to the people. Those were the federalists that Madison opposed after 1789. As he himself conceived it, Madison set out in 1787 to rescue liberty, by which he meant both private rights and popular self-government uh, from threats that could destroy it, from fragmentation of the Union or from popular abuses that had disillusioned certain leaders of the Democratic Revolution uh, and could be even more dangerous if they spread. generally neglected in the modern scholarly preoccupation with Madison's very real concern about those abuses in the states is a very great degree to which he blamed those abuses uh, on the Union's inability to handle its commercial problems. The solution, he thought, uh, did not lie in doubting that the people still retained sufficient virtue to support a democratic revolution. The solution was to reorganize the central government as a republic uh, while avoiding the mistakes that had been made in the constitutions of the states, and then to arm that central government with power to correct the underlying economic sources of so many of the nation's ills. But Madison had never been a nationalist in many of the ordinary implications of that word. And he did not become an advocate of a consolidated rather than a partly federal republic in 1787 and 88. You know, he didn't become a centralist because he always believed that concentrated central power was incompatible with genuine dependence of the government on the people. And we're never going to understand Madison's purposes in thinking if we regularly emphasize his fear of state majorities at the expense of recognizing the absolute centrality of his commitment to a popular regime. Moreover, and despite a uh, nearly universal error in the scholarship uh, in this regard, Madison had always been a proponent of strict respect for written charters, even when the charter was the Articles of Confederation. He collided with the other Federalists of 1789 
uh, in part because he'd always feared a, an imitation of the fiscal military state that many revolutionaries uh, blamed for the decay of liberty in England, and in part because whatever they believed, he understood the Constitution as the people's law, which was to be revered and not gradually remolded by the people's servants. Because he saw the federal features of that Constitution as essential to preserve the revolution. And because he always thought that a Republican solution to the vices of republics still required that rulers would remain responsive to the people's needs and will. Uh, Madison was not, of course, a Democrat by modern standards. Uh, his concept of the people usually excluded large parts of the population. Uh, he believed in leadership by wise, uh, disinterested men. Uh, and he decidedly did not believe that the immediate and unenlightened inclinations of the people ought to be put into effect without resistance. You know, it's not the sort of populistic faith that's attractive to the radical imagination uh, in our day or in his own. But with Madison, it is critical to see that sober faith in popular self-governance not fear of the majority, is at the center of his service. Our century has blamed him for his fears or praised him for the realistic wisdom that insisted on restraining the majority's demands. But contemporary enemies were nearer right uh, to criticize him as unconquerably romantic. Other people could be tempted to suspect that they were going to have to abandon, that they're going to have to choose between their Republican and their liberal commitments. Madison refused to even consider such a choice, and it's that refusal that's at the core of his distinctive contribution uh, to the shaping of the Constitution, uh, to his enduring explanation of the meaning of the Constitution, and to his effort to defend the partly federal features of the Constitution after 1789. At every step, Madison championed a well-constructed, only partly national republic, grounded on explicit popular consent, uh, committed both to popular self-governance and fundamental rights, uh, and dedicated to a set of policies that he believed would preserve a democratic social order and avoid the deadly threats to liberty that he believed had overtaken England. You know, active politicians obviously have to work their way through thickets of specific issues. But for Madison, the compass always pointed in the same direction. So we remember Madison correctly uh, as a thinker, you know, as probably the finest democratic theorist among a thinking generation. But the common image of the frigid intellectual 
uh, seeps into our scholarship in ways that twist our memory and understanding. You know, Madison was a theorist. Uh, Not as eloquent, maybe, as Thomas Jefferson or Thomas Paine, but every bit as dedicated and as important a spokesman for the party of the Democratic Revolution. But even scholarly admirers uh, seldom give full credit to that passionate commitment to popular self-governance that was the driving force of his career. Uh, And almost nobody sees as clearly as we might have absolutely a demand for equal justice, for a benevolent, impartial, and fraternal attitude toward other citizens uh, permeated everything he sought. But Madison was every inch as much a moralist in public life uh, as he was ever uh, and completely a theorist, a philosopher, a statesman. As he and others launched the infant constitution, he conducted a very deliberate uh, and in the end a failed campaign for a dispassionate, benevolent attention to universal justice. He literally asked other congressmen to recognize that they were charged by history with a unique responsibility for human freedom that they were obligated to conduct themselves as critical or exemplars for the citizens of a republic, and that federal republics would require a particularly conscientious demonstration from their leaders of a spirit of diffusive patriotism, a spirit that would show a genuine fraternal care for other states and interests as well as their own. Uh, Regrettably, Madison also came to think, as nearly all of the men of the 1790s did, uh, that his political opponents of the 1790s aimed at nothing less than the subversion of the Federal Republic. Uh, The finest temperament, uh, together with with the most complete determination to consider every issue in its full complexity, and then to take his stand where moral and Republican principles demanded, still neither saved him from mistakes uh, nor insulated him entirely from the raging partisan emotions of his time. Only Washington probably was more essential uh, to the triumph of the Constitution than Madison was. But not even Hamilton or Jefferson was more responsible than Madison himself for the titanic battles and the inflated rhetoric of the first years under the Constitution. Characteristics that helped determine probably that the nation's greatest generation of public figures could never come together Uh, to address its greatest contradiction, that is, rising clamors for equality and simultaneously strengthening support for chattel slavery. So the founders can be negative as well as positive examples of the way that statesmen can conduct themselves in a republic. 
Uh, they did not do everything they might have. Uh, they sometimes failed to act according to the elevated standards that they erected. But they did do much, uh, and Madison not least, uh, to probe the fundamentals of a liberal republic uh, and to stand as still inspiring examples of the greatness democratic politics occasionally permits. Thank you. <laughs> say uh, before I start that <clears throat> my commentary uh, plays off a part of Lance Banning's paper that, that hit the, uh, uh, the cutting room floor in his presentation this morning. So for those of you who haven't read his paper online, when I say, as Lance points out or suggests, um, I'm not referring to uh, what he had to say this morning. In any event, I'm going to try to refocus just for a few minutes uh, also on the part of Lance's paper that uh, stimulated me the most. As Lance rightly suggests in the part of his paper that uh, you haven't heard, I'm on record as supporting the notion that the term Madisonian leadership is not, as many would have it, an oxymoron. But I also think that any assessment of Madison's leadership as opposed to his statesmanship more generally, has to come to grips with his performance as president, especially as a wartime leader. And that, of course, has always been uh, Madison's problem, because it places him in the same company as Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt, where he would not simply, where he simply seems not to belong at all. Indeed, there's considerable irony in the fact that Madison was the first president to ask Congress for a declaration of war. Of all the founding fathers, he was the unlikeliest commander-in-chief. As Lance reminds us, he hardly looked the part. He was diminutive in stature, if we can use that euphemism. He was tentative, even timid, in his bearing. And by all contemporary accounts, he was anything but a commanding presence. As one of his modern biographers, Robert Rutland, has quipped, Madison was the kind of man who jumped when a gun was fired. At the peak of his manhood, when he was in his mid-twenties, Madison had judged himself too physically infirm to actually fight in America's war for independence. Until, almost 40 years later, as President of the United States, James Madison experienced combat for the first time in America's second war for independence. Uh, this unlikely episode in Madison's career is a remarkably colorful story. For more than four days in August 1814, this most cerebral of the founding fathers virtually lived on horseback, spending more than 15 hours a day in the saddle. Acting in his capacity as commander-in-chief, President Madison rode among terrified, hopelessly inexperienced American troops. He dodged the incendiary Congreve rockets launched by the enemy at the Battle of Bladensburg, and he gave orders on the field to civilian and military officials alike. This was an unexpected onerous trial for a 63-year-old man who normally spent his summers suffering from the familiar bilious indisposition that had brought him to the brink of the grave only the summer before. And by all but the most partisan accounts of the time, Madison actually acquitted himself well. He displayed ample physical courage. 
he displayed his customary cool-headedness. And above all, as always, he proved to be a steadying influence on those around him. And yet, as we all know, Madison's heroism as commander-in-chief, if we can call it that, utterly failed to prevent the enemy from accomplishing its immediate military objectives. Who can forget that on Madison's presidential watch, the United States suffered what remains, even after the events of three years ago, the most humiliating episode in our national history. Madison had to spend the better part of a week on horseback because the capital city of Washington, his and his government's home, was at the mercy of invading British troops who wasted little time registering their opinion of Little Jemmy, as the British Admiral Cockburn referred to him, and of Little Jemmy's Republic. Before leaving the area, the British invaders put the torch to the White House and the Capitol, along with most of the federal government's administrative buildings, which meant that the president, who at least escaped capture, he was packing a set of dueling pistols just in case, returned to the smoldering ruins of Washington, not triumphant, but homeless. Indeed, in the haze that lingered after the departing British troops, Americans might have wondered if there were any government left at all. Now, for most historians, these dramatic events mark the nadir of a failed presidency. Conventional wisdom has long been that the United States survived the War of 1812, Mr. Madison's war, only through the intervention of several strokes of remarkable good fortune, or to put it more bluntly, through plain dumb luck. As president, Madison proved to be an indecisive bungler, an almost colossally inept chief executive whose naive amateurish approach to diplomacy and whose lack of leadership over his own cabinet and Congress drew the United States into a war for which it was woefully unprepared. No wonder that same timid leadership tested in the fires of war would only bring the republic to the brink of catastrophe. Now, as Lance points out, again, in the part of the paper that he um, did not have a chance to talk about this morning, this familiar image of Madison's presidency is ubiquitous in the historical literature, including all modern textbooks, sometimes to the point of caricature. Going back at least 100 years to Henry Adams, Madison's reputation as a leader has been held hostage to the national disgrace of Washington, D.C. in flames. And there's little reason to think that Americans are ever going to get over that national disgrace. Indeed, as Richard Brookheiser so succinctly puts it in one of the talking points he's thrown out for us to discuss this afternoon, and I quote him, any president who lets the enemy burn the White House is, by definition, a failure. And he adds, for good measure, that Madison's conduct of fiscal and military affairs from 1811 to 1815 was, and I quote him again, one long bungle. Well, even I'm not foolish enough to try to replace this conventional view with an image of Madison as Lincolnian or Churchillian in his wartime leadership. But I do think the conventional view can be problematic and potentially misleading in a few areas worth noting. For one thing, as Lance points out in his paper, uh, this view of Madison is substantially at odds with how many of Madison's contemporaries assessed his leadership, even and perhaps especially in the aftermath of the crisis of 1814. To say that he was popular during the last two years of his presidency into his retirement would be an understatement. Indeed, his biographer 
uh, Ralph Ketchum has spoken of the adulation that surrounded Madison during these years. And most remarkably, some Americans even likened Madison's leadership to George Washington's, the common bond they perceived being force of character. Now, it seems to me, again, as Lance suggests, that this unlikely pairing of Washington and Madison, quite common after the War of 1812, but almost inconceivable to us today, only underscores the extent to which two such apparently different figures could embody the central values of a revolutionary political culture, a culture that is now remote from and even alien to us moderns. Specifically, the pairing of the two Virginians reflects what we might reasonably call a distinctively pre-romantic, republicanized conception of heroic leadership. So many of the character traits Americans imputed to Washington, who really wasn't charismatic in the more modern sense of the term, were precisely the qualities they perceived in Madison. Modesty, diffidence, self-restraint, patience, steadiness, and above all, perseverance. Madison's admirers pointed, for example, to his stoicism in the face of countless setbacks, to his steady adherence to principle, even amid alarming confusion and disorder, including, again, as Lance points out, Madison's principled resistance to any thought of prosecutions for sedition during the War of 1812, uh, even when perhaps uh, they might have been warranted. They point to his unflappable dignity, his refusal to despair, his unflagging confidence in American institutions and in the character of the American people. All of these things defined for Madison's contemporaries his leadership. And those closest to him during the crisis of 1814 always emphasized the connections between that brand of leadership and his personal character and temperament. His private secretary in the White House, Edward Coles, later reflected that what he called Madison's persevering and indefatigable efforts during the war had, quote, been in perfect keeping with the character of the man, of whom it may be said that no one ever had, to a greater extent, firmness, mildness, and self-possession so happily blended in his character. Indeed, Coles had observed Madison at close range on a daily basis during most of his presidency. And amid trials that would have tested the nerves of the strongest man, he said, Madison had never been broken. Nothing, Cole said, could excite or ruffle the man. No matter how strong the provocation, no matter how dire the circumstances, Madison had remained, in Coles' words, collected, never giving way for one moment to passion or despondency. Well, surely Madison's admirers are mistaken partisan, even delusional, about his strong leadership, and we sober-minded historians know better. Still, we might pause to ask very quickly some questions about the dramatic events of 1814, the supposed nadir of Madison's presidency. Did the burning of Washington lead to the collapse of the American Republic? More precisely, perhaps, did it so undermine the confidence of Americans in their federal government that the government itself vanished along with the buildings that housed it? Did the British attack on Washington, in that sense, become the moral equivalent of Sherman's march to the sea? I think that's what the British military hoped, that this lightning strike on the Capitol would utterly demoralize the government and its citizenry by demonstrating the palpable absurdity of Republican government, a government that could not protect itself and its own citizens from this kind of attack. But if that was the ultimate purpose, the British clearly failed, thanks in some good part 
to Madison's brand of leadership. Put simply, from beginning to end, Madison, for all his bungling, managed to hold the republic together without sacrificing its integrity. As John Adams put it to Thomas Jefferson in 1817, in a letter that Lance quotes in the part of the paper uh, we didn't hear, uh, notwithstanding a thousand faults and blunders, Madison's administration had established more union than all three predecessors, Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, put together. Now, the modern historian uh, J.C.A. Stagg, who's written perhaps the uh, best, most comprehensive, and even most damning indictment of Madison's administration of the war, has made a specific point about the crisis of 1814 uh, worth noting. Stagg writes, the government should have survived in Washington at all after August 1814 was itself no mean achievement, and for this Madison was largely responsible. By persisting in his duty and refusing to admit defeat, even under the most difficult circumstances, he ensured that his administration could survive the war and enjoy the benefits of peace when it came. Is it even possible that Madison's strength of character, and above all his unshakable faith in his country's republican institutions, literally saved the republic during the darkest days of 1814? Let's look quickly at what he did. Within hours of the British departure from Washington, without knowing if they were coming back, Madison insisted on returning to the city and establishing his presence. He immediately issued an order to his cabinet to regroup and convene. And the importance of those simple actions shouldn't be overlooked. One member of Madison's cabinet, James Monroe, later testified that the president's decisive action and reassuring presence in the hours and then days after the British attack on Washington saved the republic from what Monroe described as almost unthinkable degradation. Madison understood the importance of making himself visible to the people of Washington. He was there to act when necessary. For example, within hours of his return to Washington, he was informed by a prominent resident that many local citizens were so violently irritated at the thought of any attempting any more futile resistance that they were preparing to send a deputation of citizens to the British commander for the purpose of capitulating. The President Monroe reported tersely forbade the measure. And determined to resist any further British attacks, Madison wrote about, in Monroe's words, animating and encouraging the troops and citizens not to despair. Indeed, Monroe stated that if Madison had waited even another 24 hours to return to the city, the outcome would have been different and much less happy. And in the weeks after Madison's return to the smoldering ruins of Washington, under his leadership, the government reformed itself. All branches of the government were rehoused, and Congress actually convened in special session on schedule on September 19th in Washington, notwithstanding widespread calls as the government be moved to a safer place. In short, less than a month after the British burned the government, the city had regrouped, was making do, and finding a way to accommodate once again a functioning Republican government. By October, even Arch-Federalist Rufus King of Massachusetts was compelled to concede grudgingly that since the government was operating normally again, the capital might as well remain where it was. My point is simple. This strikes me as determination and perseverance of a distinctively Madisonian kind. And even we modern historians who are rightly critical of Madison's 
many failures as president might at least acknowledge an underlying truth that his contemporaries appeared to grasp, that at the height of the extraordinary challenges posed by the turmoil of the Napoleonic era, when the Constitution was still very much an experiment of uncertain success, Madisonian leadership on one fundamental level actually worked. Lance Penning's essay calls attention to two broad misperceptions of James Madison embedded in contemporary scholarship and then refracted into the American consciousness. First, Banning suggests that we've made faulty judgments about Madison's personality and stature. Second, he suggests that we have fundamentally misunderstood the course of Madison's political career and his political values. In his analysis of Madison's personality and stature, Lance identifies and extols a number of Madisonian virtues. Included among these are modesty, gentility, temperance. Lance also talks about Madison's commitment to disinterested public service and to constitutionalism. For the most part, I overwhelmingly agree with this dimension of, of Lance's analysis, but I would only add that Madison could be a hard-nosed politician as well. Madison, uh, an additional piece to the puzzle of Madison's character and political style, in other words, is an increased appreciation for his political savvy. Madison's political savvy was most vividly illustrated in one of his most famous legislative victories, his defeat of a general assessment for the promotion of religion in the state of Virginia in the mid-1780s. In the fall of 1784, a proposal for the tax of, for the support of religious belief was reintroduced into the Virginia Assembly. The assessment had the support of two of Virginia's most powerful and effective politicians, Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry. Although Lee and Henry were normally bitter political opponents, they nevertheless agreed on the importance of state support for religion in the maintenance of public virtues. At some point during the assembly debates over the religious assessment, Madison gave one or perhaps even several of his typical thoroughly reasoned and researched speeches against it. Nevertheless, Henry doubtlessly more than reversed Madison's efforts. Spencer Roan, who served in the session, uh, in session of, of, the, of the House of Delegates that Madison gave this presentation and the speech in, later observed, as an order, Mr. Henry demolished Madison with as much ease as Samson did the cords that bound him before he was sworn. At about the same time, Jefferson proposed a solution to the Henry problem. He and Madison Jefferson suggested should, quote, devotely pray for Henry's death. <laughs> Forced to look for a more practical solution, Madison helped to get Henry elected as governor where Henry could not use his considerable oratorical abilities to ensure passage of the assessment. Henry's election as governor, Madison observed, perhaps with a touch of sarcasm and the sly sense of humor that Lance suggests he possessed, was a circumstance very inauspicious to Henry's offspring. Madison then supported a bill to incorporate the Episcopal Church. The necessity of a measure Madison observed could not be denied. But even more, voting against incorporation would have, quote, doubled the eagerness and pretext of a much great, for a much greater evil, a general assessment. 
These tactics drained support for the assessment inside the legislature where it was engrossed by a final vote of only two votes, in, in its, two votes for its favor in the majority. This evisceration of a, of a decisive majority in the legislature in favor of a tax to support teachers of the Christian religion in turn allowed Madison <coughs> to secure a postponement of a final vote on the assessment until the public was given a chance to consider its merits. In the community, incorporation of the Episcopal Church stirred resentment among the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians and the Episcopals were the two dominant religious sects in Virginia at this time. Madison was, quote, far from being sorry for the mutual hatred of the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians because their union could have ensured passage of the assessment. Madison also anonymously joined the subsequent petition war with his landmark statement of the relationship of church and state in America, memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments. One of Madison's shrewdest and most public documents the memorial remonstrance set forth an array of arguments that, as one Madisonian scholar said, trapped a different sector of the, of the Virginia public in its decisive logic. Madison spoke to fellow rationalists by basing his appeal for the voluntary support of religion on Lockean contract theory. He assured dissenting religious groups that equality of all religious groups on a voluntary basis was essential not only to freedom of religion, but to the sanctity of Christianity. He also warned them that the same power that could establish Christianity in favor of other religions could establish a particular sect of Christianity to the exclusion of all other sects. He appealed to the revolutionary patriot by comparing the tax for the promotion of religion to the three-penny tax on tea. He warned the merchant that immigration was a product of religious persecution. When the assembly opened in the next session, a flood of anti-assessment petitions, several based upon Madison's memorial, vindicated Madison's belief that Virginians opposed even a broad-based tax for the support of Christian religions, for the Christian religion. Madison then used this tide of subsequent uh, public support and his position as the chairman of the courts of justice to introduce Jefferson's 118 law package for revising Virginia's state codes. A third of these laws passed quickly, and one of Madison's colleagues observed to another in a remark that I've always found to be one of the most remarkably perceptive judgments of Madison's political style that's, that was ever made. This, uh, this person said, James Madison has astonished mankind and has by means perfectly constitutional become almost a dictator. Nevertheless, when Madison's effort to push through Jefferson's revisual, revised codes got bogged down in debate on Jefferson's bill for proportioning crimes and punishments, Madison removed several key remaining bills, including Jefferson's bill for the establishment of religious freedom. He then guided it through the legislature. The point of recounting this familiar story is not to try to add Madison to the growing list of Machiavellian politicians especially given the many implications of that label. The point is rather that if, is, is that if preparation and reasoned argumentation were Madison's signature tools, he also sometimes relied upon sharper instruments and shrewder tactics. Indeed, he had no choice because he was not the order that Patrick Henry was and because reason was only partially effective even among rationalists. 
The second reconsideration presented in this paper and the one that has decisively redirected Madisonian studies is Banning's defense of the consistency of Madison's political career. Lance's apologia, his formal defense of Madison's political career and its consistency. In a series of essays that culminated in the sacred fire of liberty, Banning has set forth at least three underlying threads of consistency in Madison's political career and thought. These include Madison's conception of political economy, his commitment to a modified version of strict construction, and his commitment to a limited, distinctly anti-Hamiltonian conception of federal powers. With some modifications, I accept each of these revisions as decisive. Madison was no Hamiltonian in either his conception of constitutional interpretation or his understanding of the proper scope of federal powers. Lance's revision here rests upon a straightforward but previously unidentified and immensely powerful and subtle distinction between two dimensions of nationalism. One dimension of nationalism focuses upon freeing the national government from dependence on the states, the other upon adding powers to the national government. Madison, Lance has, has, has argued, and I think decisively, was a nationalist only in the first sense, only in freeing the, uh, the, the national government that was created under the, under the Constitution from dependence on the states. Uh, he was not Hamiltonian in the other way of expanding federal responsibilities or its scopes of power. Indeed, Lance suggests that in his understanding of federal responsibilities and powers, Madison was little different from most anti-federalists who also acknowledged the importance of granting the powers of taxation and commercial regulation to the national government. Furthermore, even, uh, even during the 1780s, Madison did not accept Hamilton's court scheme to create a permanent debt that would link the interests of a moneyed elite to the fate of the national government. Lance's interpretations here are formidable, perhaps even permanent. We will always debate these issues. Nevertheless, in the future, scholars who choose to treat Madison and Hamilton synonymously, I'm sorry, will, do so legitim will, not, will not do so legitimately unless they confront Lance's interpretation. There are, however, three closely areas where I resist uh, Lance's revision of Madison. First, Lance has suggested that we have overstated the effects of majoritarian abuses within the states during the mid-1780s on Madison's desire to reform the Articles of Confederation. Madison first came to contemplate reform of the Articles of Confederation, Lance has suggested, as a result of the inability of the Confederation government to counter British mercantilistic policies and because of sectional conflicts, especially the willingness of northern states to sacrifice navigation rights on the Mississippi. Second, Lance has suggested that we have overstated the importance of Madison's theory of an extended republic in Madison's political thought. Madison's most brilliant and famous theoretical contribution was, according to Lance, a brilliant preface, quote unquote, to Madison's defense of the Constitution, not the alpha or omega of his political thought. Third, Lance suggests that we err in reading Madison's famous defense of an extended republic as an effort to establish the national government as an impartial arbiter or disinterested umpire in disputes between factions. Beginning in the late 1970s, a group of scholars began to argue, contrary to the then-dominant pluralist reading of the theory of the extended republic, that Madison did not hope to channel interest group conflict into the legislature. Instead of wanting representatives to serve as advocates for the interest in their districts, Madison wanted congressmen in particular and Congress in general to serve as a disinterested umpire 
or an impartial arbiter standing above the fray of interest groups and promoting the public good. Lance has rejected any crude version of the pluralist reading of this document, but he has also rejected the impartial arbiter or disinterested umpire reading of the theory of the extended republic. I'll finish with my critique of these propositions. In contrast, I would argue that, that Madison was every bit as anxious about the excesses of democracy during the mid-1780s as previous scholarship has suggested. Indeed, Madison saw majority tyranny in the very sectional conflict that, language, that Lance distinguishes as Madison's primary reason for favoring total constitutional revision. In October 1786, Madison set forth one of his most famous and often quoted denunciations of majority tyranny. There is no maxim, in my opinion, Madison declared, which is more liable to be misapplied and which therefore needs more elucidation than the current one that the interest of the majority is the political standard of right and wrong. Madison then goes on from that to compare simple majority rule to government by force. Um, what is seldom noticed about this observation, however, is that it was not set forth as a censor, as a censor of debt or relief legislation within the states. Instead, Madison was blasting John Jay and seven northern states who had voted to sacrifice navigation rights on the Mississippi. The point here is that sectional conflict for Madison was not distinct from majority tyranny as a prior cause to constitutional reform. Sectional conflict was, or at least could be, an instance of majority tyranny. Sectional conflict and majority, majority tyranny were the same problem, not a different problem. Moreover, at least, or at least they could be. Moreover, whether or not democratic despotism was the spark that led Madison to favor total constitutional reform, the abuses of the majority had moved to the, uh, to the center of Madison's thoughts by 1787, and they fundamentally shaped the character of Madison's constitutional reform program. During the mid-1780s, Madison saw centrifugal tendencies all about him. The states were acting on their own, flying out of their orbits. Uh, majority factions were abusing the rights of minorities. Large legislative assemblies were acting irrationally. The underlying problem or, or logic that explained the actions of majority factions and large legislative assemblies to Madison was group irrationality. Men Madison observed in vices of the political system of the United States do things in public that would revolt their consciousness if proposed to them in private. They were led by, public, by, by the opinions of others to a mob mentality. Here, then, is one of the real, the historically sound reasons why the extended republic was important to Madison's program of constitutional reform. By dispersing majority factions across an extended republic, Madison hoped to, to invert the psychological di dynamic that governed majority factions. Majority factions might exist even across an extended republic, but they would less frequently realize that they were members of a majority faction. Without the compounding force of like opinions, the dynamic of group irrationality would be less powerful and factions would be less likely to act on their designs. More broadly, the argument for an extended republic is important, nay central, because it provided the organizing logic in Madison's mind for setting forth a constitutional reform program that, it wanted, that would at once address the structural inadequacies of the Articles of Confederation, provide a new national government with a few essential additional powers, and yet also address the concerns within the states. 
Madison favored a universal veto of state laws because he believed that no less power could control the abuse of majorities within the states. But he trusted the national government to exercise that potentially dangerous power and also to regulate commerce and exact taxes because he believed that the national government was likely was unlikely to be captured by an interested and overbearing majority. Madison worked here with a kind of circularity. A transfer of essential powers to the national government created an extended republic, and then the creation of the extended republic meant that the power that was given to the national government would be exercised by benign majorities. Most importantly, we need to place Madison's theory of the extended republic at the center of our studies because it points toward an even broader thread of consistency within Madison's political thought. I can see I'm being pressured here. Okay. Uh, um, I'll go straight to the, to the final paragraph. Uh, as far as I can tell, Lance rejects these lines of reasonings and seeks to diminish the influence of majority tyranny on Madison's th uh, thinking about constitutional reform because he associates these interpretations with the Hamiltonian interpretation of Madison's thoughts and aims. To be sure, several scholars have made this error. They have moved immediately from Madison's fears about excessive democracies in the states to the conclusion that he favored concentrating power in the national government and broadly construing federal powers. Still, there is a difference between distancing the national government from the public in order to affect a different balance between responsibility and responsiveness in public officials, which I read to be one of Madison's goals in the 1780s with the constitutional reform. There's a difference between that and transferring powers to the national government and consolidating power there. Indeed, Madison's concern to disperse majority factions and to create a critical distance between representatives and their constituents grew out of his effort to preserve limited government. After all, it had been democratic majorities that had caused the state governments to break from their constitutionally prescribed limits. In short, we need not conclude that Madison was a broad constructionist or a Hamiltonian in his understanding of federal responsibilities in order to emphasize his anxieties about democracy, the centrality of the extended republic in his constitutional thought, and his general goal of impartial administration. In this sense, Gordon Wood's broad interpretation of the creation of the Constitution can be reconciled with, with Banning's revision of Madison's place within it. Madison spent how many hours in the saddle? When 15, the, hours Fifteen hours a day. Well, we've this has been a rigorous and fascinating 15-hour morning, as it were. And, and what I'm going to do by way of command fiat is rather than have the questions at this point, uh, let's take a break. There's box lunches, which means that people can sit where they want. They can bring them out in the lobby or whatnot. I'd like to reconvene you all for, uh, after lunch at, a, at, uh, at 1.30 for about, about 10 minutes so that we can get questions, any rejoinders you might have, Lance, and whatnot. But I, but I think a little fuel would uh, be useful at this point. <laughs>